In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You may be seated. Alright, so last week, the sermon was titled The Logos because we were focusing on the introduction to Christ as the Word. And now we'll be focusing on the reality that He is not silent. He has spoken. And so the Logos has given us a Logos. He has given us a Word. So I want to remind you of the purpose statement of the book of John, which is all the way toward the end. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. So believing in Christ, believing that Jesus is the Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, Believing the truths about what He has done. If you believe the Gospel, you have life in His name. And to believe the Gospel is not different than to believe Him. When you believe His Word, you believe Him. When you believe His Word, you believe His mind. It is the Word of God. It is Christ delivered to us. And so, by believing the Word, we believe Christ. This book focuses on the divinity of Christ. We talked last time about how Matthew focuses on the kingship of Christ. Mark focuses on the prophetic office of Christ. Luke focuses on the priestly office of Christ. And John is focused upon 
the divinity of Christ. He is the God-man. He is the Christ, the triple anointed. And so, in this book, the simplest outline I could point you to would be to be aware of the prologue itself, the conclusion of the book, but in between, looking at the bottom of page one, you have the seven signs and the seven I am statements, which are assertions that Christ is God, the eternal God. So, go to page two. Remind of a, key, a few key things here. Verse one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Word was in the beginning. That shows that the Word is eternal. The Word was with God shows that He is a person distinct from another person who is God. The Word was God. He Himself is God. He's eternal, which means He's God. It says He's God, which means He's God. And He's with God, which means there's somebody else who's God. So, we have the doctrine of the Trinity being laid out here. At least, we have at least a duinity or a biinity. And so, we then, of course, are obviously taught about the Holy Spirit in other places. But the idea of at least more than one divine person is laid out here. Verse 2, the Word was in the beginning with God. This is a pulling of it together. It's a restatement of these things. And so we are presented with the Logos as the divine Son, Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And we are also confronted with this word Logos, which I spent a little bit of time on last time. But I want to give you some sense of a little bit more of the history. There's a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus who is famous for his doctrine of flux. Um, Pocahontas philosophy. You can never step in the same river twice. That is what he taught. But he also taught that there was some way in which there was a differentiation of things that was not merely chaos. How is it that change, constant change, does not simply result in utter chaos? And so he talked about the idea of a logos, of a reason, of a wisdom, of a mind, of something that gives an order and definition to things, so that the flux is an ordered flux. His God was not the God of the Bible. But there is a use of this word in the Greek language there. There is an association of the idea of Logos with Plato, who tries to deal with that problem of the order of thought. And his solution was to say, well, man must be an eternal soul that has been around forever and has been interacting with a world of ideas. And this world of ideas gives us form of thought. And so when we come into new life, what we are doing is we're essentially going through a, re- a reincarnation, is his, is his philosophy. And so in doing that, we enter the world, and as we interact with the world, we are reminded of these categories and forms. So you see a horse for the first time, and you're not so much learning about horses as you are remembering about horses. Now, that doctrine makes it so that there's this world of ideas, and he also has a creator called the Demiurge. He has eternal matter and he has eternal ideas. And the Demiurge connects and sort of bridges the ideas with the matter and makes things by seeking to apply the blueprint of the ideas to the matter itself. And that's sort of Plato's cosmology. That is not the God of the Bible. And that is not how the human soul is in the Bible. The human soul has a beginning. It is created in time at a particular moment. Our souls are immortal but they are not eternal. They are everlasting. They go on forever, but they have a beginning. They are not from everlasting to everlasting as God is. 
God is eternal, without beginning. He is outside of time. So there's a distinction there. One of the errors of Mormonism is adopting that Platonic doctrine that human souls have a sort of everlasting to everlastingness, that we can become eternal in that way, which doesn't make any sense when you combine it with their doctrine of celestial sex and the creation of spirits through a spirit father and spirit mother. But at the same time, this idea that you can become like God, everlasting to everlasting, is one of their key doctrines of salvation. That's the highest place you can go. And so there's sort of a bringing in of a Platonic idea. Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher, took the idea of the Logos and took it from Greek philosophy and connected it to the mind of God. So Philo was saying, okay, it's not that we're remembering things. He taught the idea that souls were created. And it's not that the Logos is a world of ideas that we're remembering, but rather that the way that we have categories that are universal thoughts and definitions and structures that make it so that we can think upon the world and think upon reality and have these things match up with what's out there is that there is in the mind of God the definition of all things. That He is the definer and the creator. And so that gets very close to what we are seeing here. But he did not have the doctrine of the incarnation. did not have the doctrine of the Trinity. And so there is something missing there. And what you see is in Augustine's interaction with this, he makes very plain this idea of the Logos doctrine and the idea that we have the work of the Holy Spirit enlightening us. We have, as the image of God, a Logos in us. That there is the Logos of the decree. He connects all of these things. And so this idea of the world of ideas being an eternal set of definitions in the mind of God, His plan, His blueprint, that that is the origin of the order of things. And so that there is not a constant flux, but rather that it's a continuity of being while those things still change. That is the doctrine that's presented by John. It was not invented by Augustine. John is interacting with this world. John was not ignorant of the Greek language. He wrote in it. He was not an unread man. It is not likely that he had never heard of the Greek doctrine of the Logos. And he's very intentionally taking the God of the Bible and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is confronting the philosophers of the age. And he is saying, you do not have a basis for the order of things. You do not know how to define reality. You do not have a basis of knowledge. It is the God of the Bible who is the Word, who is given a Word because you are designed to receive Word. And so he is calling upon us to consider the word of the witness. So we think about the word, and the word itself, we talked about that the word is propositional, there's a structure to thought. There are words that are symbols. I'm speaking them now in English. I could be speaking to you in French, except I don't know French, so that would take a lot of learning. But somebody else who knows French could be speaking to you in French, and they could say the same things. And if they were speaking to you, In those other words, they could be communicating the same propositions, but only those of you who already know the meaning of those signs, those of you who already speak French, only you would receive those signs and gain meaning. And so it is propositional. The word is ultimately meaning. And there are symbols that are given. They are written down for us, and you are hearing them pounding your ears right now. They communicate to you propositions, meanings. 
The word is rational, it's systematic, coherent. It allows you to draw immediate inferences and to syllogistically reason like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 or like Christ does when he's confronting the Sadducees and shows them the need for the resurrection by reasoning out of the Torah. The word is knowable and in fact unavoidable. We are going to have thoughts and in the very thinking of thoughts, the very thought of doubt itself is a thought. And as we consider things, we find that we cannot deny the ability to know things without contradicting ourselves. The universality of truth is presented here. This is a logos that is everywhere and given to every man entering into the world. And this logos is unchanging. These are the basic elements of truth that if you deny them, they are immediately self-refuting. Many of you have heard me teach on that in more detail. But for the sake of time, I will not repeat all that now. These texts help us not only to consider the Word as the thought that is eternal, and God Himself, but also our own thinking. And we're presented with verses that help us to deal with the heresies of Arianism and modalism. Remember, Arianism is the doctrine that Christ is created and not the eternal God. This text plainly contradicts it. And modalism is the heresy that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three ontological persons, but are simply one ontological person acting in three ways. And that is plainly contradicted by the word with. The Logos was with God. The Logos was with God. So we have... The doctrine of a created Christ contradicted. And we have the doctrine of a single unitary God contradicted. We have the Trinitarian God being defended powerfully in this text. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Last time you heard me geek out over the universal affirmative and the universal negative here, which is always amazing. Whenever you get those two things side by side, it is like the clearest possible thing. Okay, so you have all things were made through him. Everything? Well, in case you didn't get that, nothing was made that was made without him. Oh, nothing. Nothing, yeah. I just said everything that was made was made by him. And nothing was made except for the things that were made with him. So he is not created. Right? That's plainly laid out there. So we have the divinity of the Logos very clearly given to us. So he's the creator of all things, and he himself is uncreated. And the doctrine of the decree of God is very important here. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession talks about the eternal decree. Chapter 4 talks about creation. Chapter 5 talks about providence. We will talk about those in more detail later on as we get through this text. But, It's important to remember that creation and providence are decrees. Creation and providence are decrees. They are God's choice. They are God's determination. They are His speaking. They are the Word. They are His, by fiat, making things happen. It's His making all things of nothing by the Word of His power. Or, when we talk about providence, we are talking about God's Word governing invisibly the creatures and all of their actions. He upholds them. They are upheld by the word of His power. That's the decree. 
There was a distinction between the decree and the creature. There was a distinction between the decree and the event. So we'll talk about that more as we get through. Genesis 1 gives us the idea there of the word and then the things being created. So that text deals with that speaking of God. So logos is a term that refers to the decree of God. It refers not only to God himself, but also his choices, his thoughts, which are him. But we point out particular thoughts, particular choices, as individual decrees. Now, chapter or page 3, go to page 3, go to point 8. I've laid out here for you the seven senses of the Logos. Um, Gordon Clark has a book called The Johannine Logos, where he traces out the use of the word Logos in John. Um, and Srinder Gangadine has a paper, Logos paper 30, where he talks about the word of God, the Logos is truth. So my definitions are um, slightly different from Gangadine's at the point of, in particular, the decree of God. Uh, because he seems to make the decree the same as the, creation, the creatures themselves, and also seems to make the decree of providence the same as the events. So he makes the knowledge seem to be of God by the creatures and by the events. And so that's a pointing to our experience. And I'm suggesting that God is not the creatures and God is not the events as the Logos. Instead, it is his decree. Right? There's, a, there's a mixing there to be aware of that may not be intentional, but I'm trying to be very clear in my emphasis that the word of God in terms of how it relates to creation is the decree of God. Okay, So here are these seven uses. So one, the Logos is the divine son. right? Christ is the word. That's what we're introduced to at the beginning of John. Two, the Logos is the decree of God. Three, the Logos is the image of God. So that's the light that we're going to read about that lights the minds of all men. Four, the Logos is the word that's given. Right? John the Baptist witnesses. The witness he bears is the word. So all prophets bringing propositional, special revelation, oracles of God, are carrying the word. The word is also a work in us. This is the fifth form. Is also the work in us of the Holy Spirit to cause us to come to faith. And also, when we are already believers, the work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us further, to sanctify us to continue to renew us. Sovereignly, God causes us to grow in faith, and He also sovereignly causes us to even begin our faith. The sixth form in which the word is used is in reference to the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh. And that will be dealt with at the end of the chapter more. When it talks about Him tabernacling amongst us. The seven use has to do with the way in which the Logos uses the church as a temple. And so, we are the body of Christ. And we are filled with Christ. And in being filled with Christ, we are matured. And in that maturing process, 
there is a coming to a more and more mature state. Now that one is typically the one that people are least familiar with in the evangelical world. And so I have given you a couple of pages of important proof texts about that. So look down at the bottom of chapter 4. We're going to see in John this idea of the maturing of the church by the word of God increasing in terms of its dwelling talked about in John itself. John 14, 15, and 16 are very important passages about the work of Christ sending the Holy Spirit to cause a remembrance of the teaching of Christ for the apostles so that we then have the apostolic deposit put to us in the scriptures. Now, in addition to that, there is then discussion in Ephesians 4 about the work of officers of the church taking that word and giving it to the saints and the saints then ministering it back and forth to each other. And that is the process by which the body grows to the mature man. Then, Philippians chapter 3 gives to us That's again the last verse I've got quoted there on page 5. It gives to us the idea that we should be striving to grow either so that we can become mature and help to advance the maturity of the church or if we are already mature, stop focusing on what has come before and seek to add. So there is this idea of striving to be mature, or, if you're mature, striving to add to the maturity. So, John 14, verse 26, the key thing I want to point out to you there. But the Helper, the the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So notice the teaching of all things. And notice the remembrance of all the things that Christ said to His disciples. You might think those seem like two different things. You might go, well, which is it, Jesus? Is it going to be all the stuff you said? Or is it going to be all things, period? Yes. Christ communicates to us the whole counsel of God. There is nothing lacking Nothing missing. We have captured in the Scriptures the whole counsel of God. And so, captured in that apostolic deposit in the Scriptures, we have all things, all truth. The statements themselves and the necessary inferences. All the truth that is intended for our knowledge. Now, there's an infinite amount of truth. There's an infinite amount of truth. But God has not revealed an infinite amount of truth. He has communicated to us a set of propositions, many thousands of them explicitly, and has communicated to us all of their immediate inferences, many thousands times thousands. And he has also communicated to us all the things that we can derive by reasoning syllogistically, taking one line and another line and arriving at a conclusion. That is the system of Scripture. That is the wholeness of the revealed Word. And so we have been given as a set of knowledge these things that Christ delivered to His disciples. 
John 15, verse 26 says, But the Comforter comes when I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So here again, the disciples being reminded of these things by the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 13 says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will declare it to you. These are the words of Christ. The words of Christ are given by the Holy Spirit. And there are many things that Christ wanted to say to them then, but they could not bear it at that time. Christ continued to interact with the Apostle Paul, for example, and taught him afterwards. Paul being the last person to interact with the risen Christ, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. So these assertions that the Holy Spirit will cause a remembrance of the things that were revealed are powerfully given here. And we're told also in John 17 that the Word of God is truth. And so we have the fullness of the truth and the Word of God communicated to us. There is the infinite truth that is available in the mind of God, but there is the truth that's been revealed. And the truth that's been revealed to us is how we have knowledge. Now, again, Ephesians 4 and Philippians 3 give to us the idea of the process of maturing and of coming to a covenanted standard of doctrine and practice. And so that's the process of that maturing of the church. Go to verse 4, page 6. So we're going to see now the interaction of these, these seven types of the way that the Word is, is manifest and the relationship and unity of them. In Him, the Word, was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, so what this is is an assertion that Christ is divine, that He has life in Himself inherently. He has life in Himself inherently. And this life is not an animal life. It is not a material being life. This is, He is God. God is a spirit. And a spirit, a mind, has intellectual or spiritual life. So the truth here, the light, is life. Spiritual deadness is unbelief. It's believing falsehood. It's believing lies. Spiritual deadness is believing lies. And we are, when we are brought into the world, we are dead in sin and trespasses. Christ, when He was conceived in His human nature, was already alive. He was believing. He was not dead. He was sinless from the moment of His conception in His human nature. And in His divine nature, He has life and He is life. He has light and He is light. He is the truth itself. And so, having life and life, we deal with the fact that, I've shown you this list of words before, that we have this many usage of know, believe, truth, witness, truly, love, glory, life, word, light, all these things that point to the idea of a spiritual life and the way in which the knowledge of God is that life. And we have the explicit statement in John 17.3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we are reminded of the reality 
the knowledge of God is eternal life. And so he has this eternal life inherent in himself because he is the God who knows all things. He knows himself. He has the knowledge of God. He has the knowledge of self. He knows the Father. He knows the Spirit. There is in him inherently life. He is life. Now, this is important also for us to not limit the word light to reason alone. God is light. The image of God is light, which is reason in eight categories. The oracles of God, the words, are light. The Holy Spirit's work is light. There is physical, literal light that's in the Bible. There is belief in the truth as light. Guiding principles can be called light. And there's an interesting discussion in the book of Matthew where it talks about how the light of a person, the eye is the lamp of a person, and if the lamp, if the eye of a person, their focus, their thoughts, is darkness, then oh, how dark is that one. Right? So the, the things that you use to guide yourself through life, your, your guiding principles, your, your first principles, your uh, beliefs by which you interpret the world, are a light for you, but they can be in themselves a darkness. Right? So there's different ways that the word light is used. So there's a lot being put here. These little words that are used many, many times throughout the book of John and throughout the Scriptures, they are meant to cause us to wrestle. This prologue is a deep text and it's designed to make us meditate and to chew upon it and to consider it. And you can bounce back and forth from it throughout the book of John and see the places where John talks about these things in depth. We are giving previews. We are getting previews of the things that are going to be discussed throughout the rest of the book of John. So life is not just physical life. It's not just the breath of life. But it's the presence of gospel truth in the mind. Being believed. That's life in the highest possible sense for a creature. The knowledge of God is life in the highest possible sense for the creature. And so when we deal with the idea of the light that is Christ, we are reminded of what is said a little bit later, that He is the light that lights the minds of every man entering the world. And the Word of God is talked about as a light. And so we have all of these things being laid side by side. We know that we cannot see that light unless the Holy Spirit enlightens us. So go to page 7. You have here the idea in Ephesians 1, 17-18. This is a long sentence, so I've got dot, dot, dots around it. This is one of those Pauline sentences that extends on for a while. But So we're jumping into the middle of the sentence, and you can see that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your hearts being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? That work of the Spirit to enlighten the heart. That is the work of illumination. So verse 5 of John 1 says, And the light shines in the darkness. There's this objective shining of the Word of God, of Christ. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That shining 
takes the form of the image of God itself. We have thoughts. That shining takes the form of the proclamation of the Word. That shining can even take the form of people understanding what Christ says. Think about the Pharisees who understand Christ, but then don't believe Him. Right? Their response when He's calling Himself God, and His disciples kind of don't really quite get it. They're puttering around at the edges here. And the Pharisees get furious. Right? They, they, they start to like clench their jaw and tear their clothes, and they go, this is blasphemy. You're calling yourself God? They say, yeah. They understand what He's saying. They get the meaning of the words, but they don't believe it. They think it's false. They think it's a lie. And so, in the process of this shining with the reason itself, the going out of the special word of revelation and causing understanding, there is still a way in which man as darkness in unbelief, falsehood, meaninglessness, slavery to evil, does not comprehend. Does not grasp. Does not attain. Does not possess the light. Now, there's an emphasis that's going to go in on this work now of the light shining into the darkness. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So this is John the Baptist. We have the Apostle John writing, and he's talking about John the Baptist, a different man. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, any familiarity with the other Gospels is going to cause you to have a very high view of John the Baptist. Jesus says, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he. So that's supposed to magnify for us John. It's supposed to magnify for us the kingdom in terms of the new covenant era. And so we have those two things. And we, we come into this and we hear about John and we should go, oh, this guy's kind of a big deal. Big man on campus. John the Baptist. Rolling around, wearing uncomfortable clothes, eating locusts and honey, baptizing people in the desert. Crowds coming out to him. We have air conditioning. I can't get crowds here. John the Baptist, wilderness, locusts, bad smelling clothes. Hey, honey. We have honey. Crowds. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but he was sent to bear witness of that light. So his bearing of witness, here we have the Logos as the oracles again. Here we have the preaching of the Word. We have the special revelation going out. This is the shining of the light. He is carrying the light as a witness, and he speaks that light. He shines it out. At the same time, this was spoken so that there would be an objective light and some come to believe. It is a sufficient word that all could have believed, but it was not effectual for that purpose. It did not return void. God intended it to go out and to harden many. And so for John, he goes out and he prepares the way for Christ. 
and he's preaching the word, and many get converted. And what we find is you have some of the disciples of John, for example, become Jesus' early disciples. And so there's this converting of men, there's this maturing of men, right? There's many saved people that were already in Israel. There were people who had been hearing the word taught, and they were believers. John the Baptist comes, they're already believers. What's happening? They're being matured. The next steps in the history of redemption are coming, and John is preparing them. You know, we, we often look at the stories, we think about like you know, John or Peter or other apostles, and we think, oh, they must have just gotten converted when Christ was spending time with them. But they were raised in covenant homes with the Word of God being preached. They had gone to the temple and participated in the feast days. They had seen sacrifices and known that these things pointed forward to the Messiah to come. Many of them were believers and could not identify the time of conversion like many children born in Christian homes hearing the gospel since their infancy. And so you have people that are being brought along. They're being matured. And John the Baptist is coming and he's causing some to convert and he's causing some to simply be matured. And Jesus comes along and you have him pulling along people and developing them, and giving them great power. And one of them, Judas, not converted at all. Never converted. Reprobate. So this work, John comes, and he came to bear witness. And he brings this objective light, and the Holy Spirit uses it to convert and to mature some. But John was not that light. He's distinct from the Logos. But he was sent to bear witness about it. Page 8. Verse 9. That was the true light. Which gives light to every man coming into the world. So Christ was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Here we have God the Son and He is the one who causes us to have light. Now, we are the image of God. And as image bearers, man is a thinker. He's a rational creature. There's light in him. That light is the light that's being talked about here. It's the light that gives, is given to every man coming into the world. And so we looked at Romans 1 last time a little bit, but this is that text. Look at the underlined words there in Romans 1, 18-21. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. That's the light that's in them. For God has shown it to them by that light. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Right? Since the beginning, when He made man, and when He made angels, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And that making of heaven is where He made the angels. You have thinkers at that first moment. They, as thinking creatures, 
They are aware of the attributes of God. He makes man on the sixth day. And since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Eternality. Changelessness. The idea of truth and those five attributes of truth. These are things that are unavoidable. His eternal power and his divine nature. These things are manifest in him. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now, clearly seen. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Intentional rhetorical paradox. Seeing an invisible thing. How does that work? They're invisible in the sense that you can't see them with the eyes, but they are visible to the mind. You can understand them. You can think. So the mind is seeing in the sense of thinking about. And these attributes are being understood by the things that are made. You remember last time we talked about that Greek word there? That Greek word, poimasai, just means creatures. So the creatures are the ones that are knowing. Right? He is understood by the creatures. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, right, although they had an awareness of these attributes, they did not glorify him as God. Instead, what did they do? They took his attributes and put it on creatures. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this darkening versus light. So the light that's given, there's a darkening. As there's a suppression, there's a darkening. And so you have more and more gross idolatry in history. And that occurs in individuals' lives, and it occurs in cultures. Our culture is going through a darkening. It is going to be used to make the contrast of the light that the church bears witness to to be more distinct. Right? When women in the church look like women, and when women in the world look androgynously similar to men, which one do you think is going to make people go, you know, this looks like a well-ordered psychological system? Which one is going to make people go, yeah, I'd like to be like that? Which one is going to draw people to see that there's something there worth following? There is a darkening that occurs, and in that darkening, there is a deeper contrast. And a part of the reason that darkening occurs is because the church, in its laziness, fails to make different the light from the darkness. We put the light under a bushel. We hide it. We make it so that the salt has no savor. And so God brings discipline on the church and judgment on society, and He makes it so that we have to differentiate or be destroyed. And so that work, that work of God in history occurs in individuals and it occurs in societies. So look at point 26. The light of nature is the image of God and that's what general revelation is. This is the light that is given to every man entering into the world. The Bible does not teach that experience is light but rather that we interpret experience by our beliefs. Okay, so I want to show you some things from the Westminster Confession. Chapter 1.1 Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, then it goes on to talk about the necessity of special revelation for salvation. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence, those things are set side by side. We 
See in chapter 4 of the Confession a discussion of what the image of God is. Look at the underlined part. We are reasonable in immortal souls endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after God's own image, having the law of God written in their hearts. And furthermore, the, the light is talked about in Westminster Confession 21.1. The light of nature shows that there is a God. Okay, so that's the same thing that we just read in Romans. And Romans later is going to talk about the law of God being written on the heart. Okay, so you have the confession stating the same things that Romans says. There are the attributes of God, and there is the law of God written on the heart. And the confession asserts the same things. Now, the light of nature, when we talk about the, whole, the, the, the work of Christ as the light that lights the minds of every man, this is not talking about looking around at stuff. This is not touching things. This is not hearing with the physical ear. This is not taste and it is not smell. This is not the empirical senses. This is a light that is inward. We do not pick up on the invisible attributes of God by looking at visible creation. Those things are planted in us. Those attributes are present in us and we interpret the physical world with them. So, we don't come to the knowledge of God by a study of the external world. Furthermore, when the Scriptures, and when we talk about the confessional position, dealing with the work of creation and the work of providence, I said this earlier, but I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing. It is not the things that are made. So, the confession of faith, when it talks about the idea of the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifesting God to us, it's not saying reason plus looking around at things. Look at Shorter Catechism question 9. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is... God's making all things of nothing by the word of His power in the space of six days and all very good. Did you see that? Do you see that? Do you watch that? Do you look at that? Were you there? Is the Westminster Confession of Faith saying that the light of nature and your observation of creatures is general revelation? No, it is not. It is saying the light of nature and the thought that God is necessary as a maker. And then we look at providence. It's saying the work of providence. What's the work of providence? Question 11. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. When you see an event, is it necessary for you to understand that God is the cause of that event? Is it necessary for you to interpret that event as being governed by his decree? I mean, there are lots of people who claim to believe in some sort of a God who don't think he controls anything. Or some varying degree in between some things and not certainly the salvation of men. Those people claim to believe in a God, but they deny his control over at least some things. The scriptures clearly teach that God controls everything. The work of providence is God's governing the creatures and governing their actions. That's invisible. That's something that's thought and not seen. You can 
have a bullet whiz by your head and you can think, wow, that was lucky. Or you can think, the Lord God Almighty just reminded me of my mortality and spared me from imminent death. Those two thoughts are very different interpretations of the same event. So it is the thought of God's providence and the thought of creation. Those are the works of creation and providence that are being talked about in the Westminster Confession. So what we deal with, the light that lights the minds of all men, Christ, the eternal Son, lights the mind of every man, including blind, deaf men. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know. And I'm sorry, one last thing before moving off of that. Accountability does not depend upon sense experience. You can lack all smell, all taste, all touch, all hearing, and all sight. And you, if you are a thinker, are responsible for rejecting the Lord God Almighty. Accountability does not depend upon experience. Accountability depends upon being a rational creature. Now, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. So there's a presence of Christ in the world. There's the fact that Christ made the world. And the fact that the world did not know him. These three propositions are put next to each other. And they're very startling. He's in the world in all of the ways that we look at in terms of the definition of the Logos. And he is the one who made the world and upholds it. And yet there is this ignorance of him. We have to put those things next to each other from Romans and from John. It talks about the world not knowing, but it also seems to say in Romans that everybody knows. So these are no in two different senses. So last time there were some questions about in Romans when it says they don't know when it says they know him, how do we how do we deal with that? That sounds like true justified belief. Well, they don't know him in the same sense that it's then said that they don't know him. John is talking about a true knowledge, knowledge in the technical sense. And Romans is talking about an awareness. There's an awareness of the attributes of God in Romans that everybody has and everybody's accountable for. And in John, there's a discussion of a true justified belief, something where you can demonstrate, where you know from a first principle, the word of God, that this thing is so. So those are put side by side. So, verse 10, go to point 35. He was in the world in his omnipresence, by his decrees, by the image, the oracles. He comes incarnate. He illuminates the church. But the world doesn't know him. Point 36, God intentionally chose to not illuminate the world salvifically. He gave light to everybody so everybody's accountable, but he didn't give light that saves to everybody And God intentionally did this. That's a terrifying God. He's a terrifying God. The God that chooses to give accountability light to everybody and salvation light to not everybody. That's a terrifying God. And so we are shown some of the fearsomeness of God here. Look at page 10. Point 37. God will save the world 
from the unbelieving world of darkness. That is what we're going to see advancing through the book of John, and we see that in other parts of Scripture. God is going to save the world from the unbelieving world of darkness. There are the two cities, the city of God and the city of man. He's going to smash the city of man into oblivion and replace it with the city of God. The city of God is going to fill the earth. The book of Daniel is very plain about that. This is going to occur by filling the earth with the knowledge of himself as the waters cover the sea. The seas are not shallow places. He's going to fill the earth with a deep knowledge of himself. He's going to do that by filling the earth with the church. The city of God will displace the city of man. And he's going to fill the church with a deep knowledge of himself. We read those verses earlier on about the maturing process and the way in which the word is given as a deposit so that we have all truth. And then that there's this work to mature the church with officers and the ministering of saints to each other. And that there's going to be captured high points. And those high points should not be abandoned. That is the process. That's the advance. Those are the steps. He does this by destroying the unbelieving world in providential judgments by degrees. Augustine wrote about the destruction of Rome, and many Christians lamented and thought that the destruction of Rome was the destruction of the eternal city. And Augustine's point is, it's not the eternal city. The church is the eternal city. The city of God is the eternal city. America is not the eternal city. The church is the eternal city. And if America is not a Christian nation... And let it be abolished and replaced with a Christian nation. A Christian nation is what we are called to see. Destroying the unbelieving world is a part of how God does his work. And the preaching of the word brings judgment. Do you want to see wickedness converted or destroyed? Preach the word. When you speak the word, it increases judgment or it converts. It brings destruction or it brings life. Christ accomplishes his work by displacing and replacing the unbelieving world in mercy with a believing world of light through additions of holy seed in the city of God, children being raised in the fear and admonition of him, and conversions of unholy seed, people who are brought out of the city of man into the city of God. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And this is what... John is going to emphasize this a lot in this book. The Old Covenant Church. The Church of the Old Testament. Christ came to the church and the church rejected him. Christ came to the church and the church rejected him. The Old Covenant Visible Church rejected Christ in order to accomplish many goals. Especially the goal of bringing about the death of Christ as the Lamb of God. The covenant people of God Betraying and murdering Jesus Christ was for the purpose of saving the elect, including many of those involved in the killing. Jesus Christ prayed on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Every individual he had in mind when he prayed that was saved, was forgiven. There are many elect persons that were involved in the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of them was a centurion who was organizing the enlisted men in the process of killing him. Christ came to his covenant people and they rejected him. Point 39, the old covenant visible church rejected Christ in order to accomplish many goals. 
Point 40. The rejection of Christ resulted in the rejection of Israel as an Old Covenant church, as a nation. And also resulted in the immediate acceptance of some Gentiles from the nations into the New Covenant church and the gradual acceptance of the nations as covenanted nations. 41. When the nations covenant as nations, the jealousy of Israel is and will be inflamed so that when the nations of the world receive Christ, the one nation, Israel, is encouraged to receive Christ. Point 42. The rejection of Christ by Israel meant the rejection of Israel by Christ. The rejection of Israel meant the acceptance of the nations. The acceptance of the nations by the rejection of Israel means the latter acceptance of Christ by Israel. And when the acceptance of Israel occurs, it will be like life from the dead. We have this expectation in the future. Romans 11.15 says, For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In a similar way to how individuals are caused to be resurrected when they are given faith, They go from dead to alive. The world will have a state going from deadness to aliveness. The extent to which covenant blessing will fill the earth at the bringing back in, the ingrafting again, the branch that was torn off from the olive tree, when that occurs. So the book of John is designed very much to highlight the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Israel that was the old covenant church. And it lays that out for us to see the curseness of that rejection. But also, it points to the promise of a later coming where that branch is grafted back in. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?